good morning. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. This morning, chapter number three. And while you uh, find your place there, you can mark that and also uh, find Numbers, chapter number 13. We'll look at that uh, here in just a little bit as well. And it is so good to have Horace here with us this morning. And it's good to see you. And um, what a joy. Also, Leard and Carol back from Texas. So, uh, we praise God for that. Well, uh, as you are finding your place, we're going to read Hebrews uh, beginning of verse number 7. Let me just encourage you to, uh, to make it in your plans to join us on Wednesday night. And this Wednesday night, uh, we're going to look at God's Word. We'll study the Word together, take a little bit of time of that. And then we're going to exercise our belief. And that is, we believe God hears our prayers and works through them. And uh, so let me just encourage you to meet together as we come every Wednesday night to to lift up uh, the burdens uh, of this people, of the church, not only our immediate burdens, but uh, but many of our missionaries and other things that are going on. So uh, let me just invite you to come this Wednesday night. If you've gotten out of habit of that, uh, uh, try to uh, to get back in, right? Get back in right where you got off. We... So anyway, Hebrews chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing and the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, so as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For... Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while they while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his words were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, <clears throat> there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that is a powerful verse and a comfort uh, to us this morning. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. And no creature... And sin from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. And Father, we just pray for the blessing of the reading of your word and uh, speak to our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, in October of 1995, 
I think it was earlier in that month, probably the first week or two, I just turned 18. And after spending a week in the field of not showering and playing G.I. Joe, uh, I packed all of my belongings in my rucksack and I put it on my back, grabbed my M16. I took a long, long walk back to the barracks. Uh, in fact, it was pretty exciting at the beginning of it because you're 18 and you're walking with M16 on the side of the road and your mind just runs wild with imagination thinking something was going to jump out in the Oklahoma ditch and, and maybe I could do something. I don't know. I didn't have any bullets, but still, like Barney Fife, I didn't even have one. Uh, about an hour and a half, I realized that whoever was leading us was either lost or they was taking the long way home. Uh, my thrill of, of uh, playing G.I. Joe was over, and I was just exhausted from the long week of not showering and, and living outside and doing all that we were doing and, and continually marching. It was like one foot in front of the other. There was, there was something that was evident to me that at the end of that march, I knew there was a shower. Whether it was hot or not didn't matter, but there was a shower somewhere that, that I was anticipating and there was a moment where I was going to take that rucksack off and lay it down and, and let go of that burden. And, and to use the Hebrews language, there was a rest I was anticipating. But another truth was evident to me as they kept taking the wrong turn in my estimation. And that was, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So if I could just use that terminology in the writer's mind of Hebrews... He wants to assure us and remind us there is a rest for the people of God. We even see that in chapter number four as he kind of builds upon this this theme as we stated in uh, verse number nine. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It is a promise to us and yet he reminds them as true as that is, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. It's pretty obvious to us, and, and sometimes the most obvious things need to be repeated to us. Need to be, we need to be reminded of the saints just as this early group of Christians needed to be reminded as well. Well, the passage we just read, in, beginning in verse number 7 towards the end of verse number, or chapter number 4, is, is really one of the most troubling passages in the Bible, among others, but it is right there at the top of them. What do you do with it? And you go to chapter number 6. Again, you see this kind of tension that is built in his words as he begins to warn and exhort his readers. Because it isn't just there is a rest and you're not there yet. His concern is that you make it. That you make it. Not only is there a rest and you're not there yet, make sure you get there is kind of the idea, his concern. And so he's speaking from a pastorly position, not just the writer himself, uh, as the preacher or, or the pastor, whoever it is, writing the letter, but God himself, the Holy Spirit, is, is speaking to the church then and now, uh, in reminding us that there is a rest, and that we're not there yet. Take care, be careful that you make it. Be careful that you make it. He does so by, by way of first, as we notice, beginning in verse number 7, as we look at this, as a case study. A friend of mine was taking a class in, in church ethics or something like that. I'm not sure exactly, but they did what he called case studies. They, they looked at a church in a situation they were facing, a problem, and they evaluated how the church handled it. And then everyone discussed, well, did they do the right thing or was it moral or ethical and, and all of this other stuff. And, and what you see the writer doing is he's coming back to the Old Testament. He says, he says let me flesh out my concern for you by way of... An analogy, an example, an illustration, a case study. And it's not uncommon with a writer, or it's not just unique to the writer. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, saying that God give us the Old Testament and that example of the wilderness wandering so that we may be instructed or that we may learn by it, edified and worn by those events. And so he begins in verse number 7, quoting Psalms 95. And he says, verse number seven, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They will always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He's quoting Psalms, the end of Psalms 95, referring back to the nation of Israel, the children of Israel. And he's referring back to the fathers or that generation which saw the works of God. Now, last week, we, we considered the servant Moses and how he was faithful in, in doing what God has called him to do. And now he's, he's kind of highlighting the generation that God delivered out of the land of Egypt, those who were held captives and slaves. It was those whom Moses went and spoke with as he come telling them that God has sent me to deliver you. And, and it was those who, who during that time saw God work in some magnificent ways. In one part, we read one of the plagues that God struck on the nation of Egypt was a darkness. A darkness, the Bible says, that could be felt. Have you ever felt darkness like that? I don't know if it's like this feeling that something's just going to jump out and grab you because you just can't, can't see anything or not. But, but, but he says that there's this plague and, and this darkness. And he says in the midst of that, guess what happened where Israel was living? All the lights were on. God made a distinction between his people in that judgment and the nation of Egypt all through the plagues. God's showing a distinction all the way up to the Passover. And they saw that. They lived through that. Isn't it sometimes what we think when we read the Old Testament? Boy, if I was living in those days, I would be just like them. Well, it's true. You would be just like them. And, and the writer is saying that may not be a good thing. Not only did they see God's deliverance in his hand, but the Bible says as they left out of Egypt, they, they took all the spoils from their neighbors. They went to their neighbors and said, hey, you got any extra gold laying around? How about some silver? And, and they took all of this stuff as if they won a great battle. And they won a great victory and they conquered an enemy and they, they took all the goods from Egypt and, and, and all of that because God won a great battle and God won a great victory and yet they walk out as victors themselves. It's an amazing thing as you read your Old Testament, isn't it? Your Sunday school teacher tries to bring that to life for some of you who, who learned this first as a small child in Sunday school class. And, and you see them coming to the Red Sea and God parting the waters. Who does that? Some scholars will tell you, well, they, they passed on the lowest part over there and there was probably a drought that was going on. And, and so the riverbed was open and they could walk right through it and... And that's pretty impressive that God can drown an army in just an inch of water or whatever it is. And yet what you see is here is this group of people coming, being delivered out of Egypt, coming to this place uh, in the wilderness, and, and you see the result of what takes place. They saw the mighty works of God, and yet, yet he says in a warning as he looks at this, not to harden our hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now the language from Psalm 95 is, is taken out of Exodus 17 verses 2 through 7. You can read that at some point. Write that down and kind of read through that account. They come to the wilderness and there as they encamp, they're running out of water. And, and what do they do in the midst of that? Well, they do what they always do. As you read through Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, they start murmuring and complaining and fighting with Moses. Moses names the place after, after praying to God and God calls him to strike a rock with his staff and he brings water out of, the, out of the rock in verse number seven of that and he called the name of that place Massa and Mirabah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? At the first inclination of adversity or difficulty in the wilderness journey, their, their immediate response is to, to put God to the test. That's what the word there means, and those names mean to test and in the day of rebellion. The, the writer's getting at the heart of what is going on as he, as he reaches back into the Old Testament. He says it was a day of rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And they were saying to themselves and saying to Moses, is God among us? Let him show himself or prove himself. This, this become typical of the nation. It, it, it was almost to, to say, we don't believe you, prove it to me. Well, it's almost amazing when you think about what had just taken place, right? 
and what he did for them. And then they're, they're pushing, show us, prove to us kind of mentality. And turn with me to the book of Numbers. Because the event here, the event at receiving water from the rock is not, is not the main emphasis of the passage here. And it is... It is gaining or going to receive the possession which God gave them. You find that in chapter 13 and 14 of Numbers. The day of rebellion on the day of testing. Now we won't read it all. It is worth reading in your own private time as you, as you go home. I want to just point out a few verses beginning verse 17 of chapter number 13. The Bible teaches us God sent out 12 spies into the land and to view out the land they're gone and, and they view out and, and, and to see what kind of land it was. Was it truly as good as God has promised? Was it something that, that their fathers had told them about in the promise of Abraham and, and all that has been passed on? Was it truly their possession? Was it flowing with milk and honey? That was the concern and so the spies go out and they come back with a with with part of a good report in verse number 27 and they told them as they come back giving a report of what had taken place we came to the land to which you sent us it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit they brought back all the the this big thing of grapes and all of the other things that the land possessed it was truly in milk and honey you know what that means right it means it was a it was a fruitful blessed land it's just like god said with exception with exception. Because they go on and talk about in verse number 31 uh, that same chapter. And then the men who gone up with them, Caleb and uh, Caleb is saying, well, let's go at once and take this land. Let's go at once and, and, and receive God's gift to us. We're able to overcome it. Verse number 31, then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. There's giants in the land. In verse or chapter number 14 emphasize the response of the people in the midst of the bad news then all of the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of israel i don't know what your translation says mine says they grumbled going back to what was typical of them well they were known for they grumbled against moses and aaron and the whole congregation said to them would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? Standing there in the midst of receiving God's promises to them and the, at the verge of the promised land. Something that Joseph had prophesied. They're carrying Joseph's bones to, to kind of remind them of the great promise that Joseph gave. And, and at the point of almost receiving it, at, at the threshold... They said, would we have died in Egypt in the wilderness than to go over? That is remarkable. I was thinking, uh, I even shared in our prayer time, how it is when, when I was a kid going to the beach and you travel over those bridges and you know you're close, you can smell it in the air, right? That salt smell on every bridge, you're just stretching your neck just to kind of see, can I see the ocean? Surely it's so big, you've got to be able to see it before you get to it, Right? So they put all the hotels in the way and you can't see it nowhere, anywhere. Uh, but there's that longing, that anticipation of getting there in all of those years culminating to this one event. And as they go over and come back, what is the response of the nation? Would have been better to die in Egypt or the wilderness. What is God doing? Is he trying to send us over there to die? Notice verse number three. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our, our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Verse number four, as if it's the climax of their revolt against God, the rebellion. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. What are they saying? Let us choose an anti-Moses. Not one to draw us out of slavery, one to take us back. One to lead us back to where we was. And of course, God in his wrath speaks against them, as he says in Hebrews chapter number 3. You can turn back to there with me. Verse number 11 of chapter 3. 
as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, I want you to put this in perspective. 600,000 men, 20 years up, the book of Exodus, um, chapter 12, verse 37, tells us how many men, not counting women and children, came out of the came out of Egypt, bondage. There's 600,000 men. Some say maybe 1.5 million people, 2 million, 3 million, something of that nature. There's a lot of people coming out of Egypt, but 600,000, only two. Two. Only two went into Canaan. That's sobering, isn't it? Out of all those people, and what is at the heart of it? Well, God tells us, doesn't he? The rest of the generation, all of those, all of that adult generation would die in the wilderness. They would wander around aimlessly in the wilderness, never coming to the rest God had promised. And their sin was that of unbelief. Verse 19 clarifies that for us in chapter number 3. So we see that they were unable, they could not enter in because of unbelief at the very heart at the very heart of what was going on we see it was it was the wickedness of unbelief they did not believe god god destroyed egypt decimated he he ransacked it with his plagues and his judgment upon them they even took the spoil from egypt and then they go to canaan land and they say god can't deliver us we're going back and he says that the very heart of their issue was unbelief, and so God would not let them. They were unable to enter into his, his rest. Not only do you see a case study, he comes, beginning in verse number 12, to apply that to his current generation. To the readers of his day, those who were struggling maybe in Rome or Italy, to the small church or, or the community of gathering together. And he says, all of this was true then. We see that then. But, but I want to tell you something first and foremost. The warning is that God is still speaking in this manner today. Notice that he says this at the beginning in verse number 7. The warning begins with the reality that the message itself is from God he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, showing the writer's high view of the Bible, of what he considered to be the Old Testament, not the psalmist, he's quoting the psalmist, not, not, the, not the Moses, the writer of the Old Testament. He says, all of this is coming from God. He's the official author of his word. As one guy has said so adamantly, when, you, when, when God's word is read, when we read it, it is God speaking to us. So here it is. He says, this is God's word. But not only is it God's word, not only is the Holy Spirit saying this, but he's saying it to us. He doesn't say, verse number 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit said. Past tense. It would be true, right? When you, when you write, you, you think back, it was how many thousand years ago? Even when this was... Written 2,000 years ago, give or take a month or two, we could say said. But he shows us and he reminds us what we know about our Bible. It is not a dead word. It is a living book. It is, it is God using his word to speak to us even today. The very fact that he is giving this warning and we're visiting it as we're going through the book of Hebrews is, is a reminder that God is speaking to us through it. It is, it is now that he is encouraging. It is now that he is warning. It is now that he is, he is calling us. I don't know how you are when you read your Bible, but it's so easy to get caught up in the history of it and what, what was going on in Corinth or what was going on in, in, in Galatia and what was going on in Ephesus. We read those things and what was going on when they, in, in Jordan with Joshua. And, and all of that sometimes we can forget. The word of God is not meant to be left in the past, in the history. It's meant to be a word to us in the moment, today. It is meant to be a word speaking to us in our lives, in the circumstances that we face. It's a good reminder. I, I know even going through this, even thinking about this, it's a good reminder to me. As, as you read the Bible, what is God saying to me? It is a word 
It is word not just of the past, it is the Holy Spirit speaking now. Speaking now. But what is the message? Well, he says this in verse number 12, doesn't he? It is a warning to take care, brothers. And scholars are probably right in pointing out here, he mentions just brothers. Some suggest this reference of brothers. He's speaking to Jewish, those who are his brothers nationally. He changes where he mentioned earlier in chapter number one. Or chapter number three, verse number one, he speaks about holy brothers. So there's a distinction here. There's something to be made of that. He is is referring to those who who need to hear this warning. He says, take heed, brothers. Take heed. Well, take heed of what? Verse number 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. He's saying, do you see what happened in Israel? You see what happened in the wilderness wandering? That generation had come out and saw all of his mighty works. And it goes back to remind us that that old saying, if we if we seen what they saw, if God did among us what he did in those days, then we would believe. And the Bible says that's not the case. In fact, we know that with the scribes and Pharisees, don't we? As the soldiers come back and the tomb is, and they tell the they tell the chief priest all that had happened, the angel coming, the, the stone being rolled away, they tell them all that. What do they do in the midst of such such phenomenal evidence of Jesus being raised from the dead? They pay him off and they make up a lie. Well, the issue was the state and condition of their heart. He says, "Take heed, brothers. Take heed, lest there be some." Of you like those. They started off well through the Red Sea, but didn't enter into the rest. And I would say church history has proved over and over and over again many like that generation. And soberingly enough, maybe some even here. He says we should take care. Lest any of you, through the unbelief or through an evil, unbelieving heart, it would lead us to fall away from the living God. The term here, fall away, as we come to understand theologically, is, is used as to apostate or apostatize. It's a word to do with leaving. It could mean in a physical sense as the angel left the presence of Peter as he, as he delivered him in the book of Acts. And, but it has more of a meaning of, of leaving the faith. Walking away from the faith, an evangelical dictionary of theology, which is a mouthful in and of itself to say, defines apostate as a deliberate repudiation and abandonment of the faith that one has professed. So he's saying that, that take heed lest there be some among you abandon the faith which you once professed. I don't know if you've read the article this past week in the New York Times, of a famous evangelical preacher's son, whom we all know if I said his name, you can read the article yourself. And the article was to give voice and platform, I think pretty much to promote the son's decision and his energy and his efforts to the fact that he had 900,000 TikTok followers. Now, I am not sure what TikTok is, hardly other than small, short little videos, I guess. Is that right? Someone nod, just... Help me out here. And yet this, uh, this follower, this son of this famous evangelical pastor, um, uses his platform to, to do many numerous things, but part of his effort and work is to dismantle the faith that he was once raised up with, that he had once professed to believe. He's speaking out against his father's religion and, and what he once was a part of. In the article, there's a, a young woman, I guess she's young, I don't know if they give her the age, who had several hundred thousand followers herself doing pretty much the same thing, who had, had actually had went under marriage counseling of that son's father, at least one of his resources and books. And the same thing was true with her. Stepping away, repudiation, rejecting the faith. And it's not just something uncommon. We see it over and over in our society. We see it sometimes in people we know and the hurt and, and the pain that that caused. To walk away, 
to know everything about the gospel, know everything about Christ, and to walk away and say none of it's none of it's any good. None of it's useful. And what is at the heart of it? A wicked heart of unbelief. And you know, we prize skepticism in our day, don't we? Holding things at a distance. Just a little bit more and I'll be sure. Just a little this or, or a little that or, or I'll take it just so far. I don't want to be considered whatever uh, fanatic or, or gullible or whatever it may be. And, and that the process of that, the, the fear of this pastor is that one day in the midst of your doubt and skepticism of God that you'll wake up with a hard heart deceived by your own sinfulness and you will hear that you will not enter my rest. Like that of the children of Israel at the threshold of rest, you will not be able to enter in. Because of unbelief, because of rejection of God, rejection of Christ, you will not see God's rest. To know the truth, to assent to it, to be familiar with all the ins and outs, and to walk away from it is a, as a phase in life is a terrible thing to consider. And yet it happens. It happens. Let me just clarify a few things, what he is not saying here. He is not speaking about the non-Christian, the atheist, or the worldly person who has never claimed faith in Christ. He's not speaking about those. His his fear is not, not with them. His warning is to the church community gathered together. So in in picture setting like this, a a group that would gather together, identify in some fashion or another Christianity to some degree, this is who he's speaking to. He's not referring to the atheist or the, or the worldly person in that regard, but he's also not referring to the struggling Christian. But simply one who falls or deals with sin, David in the Old Testament, I think Peter in the New Testament gives us comfort for that. The Westminster divines recognize the struggle when they deal with the doctrine of perseverance of the saints or, or preservation of the saints, however you want to word that, and the, and the reality of our own inclinations to sin and really mess up. And after talking about God and his preserving of the saints, dying for them, securing them, and, and all that he does for them, he says, nevertheless, for the divines write in the Westminster um, They said, nevertheless, they may through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of the corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. It's also not talking here that this call of perseverance is what saves us. And I think it's worth stating that point. You can see that in verse number 14 as he calls for us to persevere in the faith. Take heed, watch your own life, lest that unbelief lead you into into falling away from God, rejecting God. And, And so we question, what does that mean? So it makes it so difficult, doesn't it? Well, notice verse number 14. For we have come to know, or we have come to share in Christ. Now, that's speaking past tense, isn't he? We've come to share in Christ. It's something that has happened. We've brought in to share in Christ. If, there's the condition, if indeed we hold to the original confidence firm to the end, speaking about something in the present or the future. And he's saying that that present re, or that past reality of sharing in Christ gives us confidence and, and produces that perseverance in us. Produces that perseverance in us. What has happened in the past is meant to impact our present and our future, what we believe and what we hold on to. That's basically what we see in that language. John explains it this way. In 1 John 2, 19, when he says they went out from us, speaking to those who fall away, those who apostatize, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. Isn't that sobering? John, ministering to this church there, in his first epistle, saying that there were some that left you, but know that they left you because they were never of you. They were with you, present. They were physical with you, but they were not truly of you. 
If they would have been of you or with you in that manner, then they would have remained. Well, that's a sober warning, isn't it? Sober warning because of the of the danger of beginning well, starting off all fire and and and, and gun ho, and ending up as it says here, not able to enter into his rest. At the very heart of that, that's what that's the full fruit of unbelief. That's the the root of unbelief. That's its full work in our hearts and lives. Not only to hold God at a distance, keep Him kind of a suspect to us, and and us to continually criticize Him and critique Him with everything going on, but ultimately to reject Him. Ultimately to reject Him. And so He says, "There's some among you that must take heed, must be careful." Lest there be that same unbelieving heart in them, leading them to fall away. And that's the same word for us. But it doesn't leave us there. That's sobering, isn't it? He gives us a remedy. I like remedies, right? The first remedy, he says, and I'm going to give this in, in the way of three words to you this morning. One is today. One is today. How do we fight unbelief in us and among us? And we do that by today. Notice in verse number 7, he says in the beginning of his quote, Today, if you hear his voice. Again, in verse 13, Today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, in verse 15, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. He's trying to emphasize something for us. How do we battle unbelief among us and in our own lives, in our own hearts? Well, we do so living out the reality that today is all you got. As someone has, has, has put it powerfully and, and with the image of tomorrow is the devil's day. Procrastination and, and always putting off trusting and believing and, and settling things tomorrow always leads us to, to be able to be comfortable in the midst of disobedient, disobedience in the moment. He said, how do you deal with that is, is that you listen to God's voice in the moment. Today is the day in which we, we prepare our hearts. We battle unbelief. We, we deal with all the things going on. Not tomorrow. Now we want to do it tomorrow, but, but as we do it tomorrow, guess what tomorrow will be? Today. Someone once said there was never no tomorrow. There's only a today. And it's quickly passing into yesterday. As we see the reality of today again, over and over. And he says, how are you going to do this? Well, he says, you're going to do it dealing with today. And there's a real reality that, that as the Spirit is speaking to us today, this morning in the 21st century with this passage, it, it really, let me say this carefully, but it doesn't matter what happened 20 years ago. Well, it does in one way, but in another way, are you trusting God now? Are you trusting God today? Now there is a re, there is something to be said about about coming down to an altar or or coming down to the step and and praying and meeting with God after service and getting getting with God and doing some business as they would say with God. But but the reality is, how is that fleshed out today? How is that fleshed out today? It is great that, that 10 years ago that, that there was a commitment and a confession of sin and a trust in Christ. But, but as that translated in today, today is the day in which we trust Him. Today is the moment which you take your cares and your troubles and your worries and you lay them at the feet of Christ. We, we battle unbelief, not with anticipation of tomorrow necessarily, but with obedience and trust in the moment, in the day. That's, that's what he means by that. This is the time and this is the moment. And that temptation for us to say, well, tomorrow. Or as the, as the one ruler said to Paul, maybe a more appropriate time I will hear you on this matter. And yet that time never came. We presume upon the grace of God. We presume upon tomorrow. And tomorrow is never promised. One uh, writer was speaking about a, an Old Testament, or speaking about a church history scholar who was giving a lecture on Luther. And, and he looked at the young generation that he was talking to. And, and he says, you'll never get Luther. And they're, they're like, well, what's the matter? He's like, because you, you, 
You don't see how important, how significant today was. They never had the promise of tomorrow. You could die at any moment. And yet we have become so comfortable in our life. If we want to battle unbelief in our own hearts and battle unbelief among one another, then we must do it in the moment. We must do it today. We must trust God today. There's some relief in that, beloved, because because you, you, we, we project significant and overwhelming things tomorrow and wonder what we're going to do with it. And God says, trust me now. Whether that comes that way or not, it's in the moment you can trust me. And can I say this? He is faithful yesterday. He is surely faithful today and he will be faithful whatever tomorrow holds. He says we battle this by trusting God today. and Not only in trusting God today in our own lives as Christians, but, but trusting God today and, and coming to Christ. The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Spurgeon preaching on that text at one point in his ministry said, said to those who said, let me go home and pray about it. He says the Bible doesn't say go home and pray about it. He says now's the moment that you trust and accept Christ. And I would say this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, there's nothing more that I can tell you that I haven't said already week after week after week that salvation is only found in Jesus Christ and it is now that you must act. It is now that you must reach out. It is now that you must trust and put your faith in Him. Because if He is not trustworthy now to forgive you of your sins, then there is no assurance that you'll trust Him tomorrow or next week or when you get better. Oh, beloved, today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. It isn't difficult to understand all the ins and outs, that, that all of sin and come short of the glory of God and that, that there is none righteous, no, not one. We know that, don't we? We see that reality. It's just very difficult to surrender one's life, to put your trust in God. In some ways that maybe he will save you, some ways that maybe he will accept you, or in some ways maybe that, that you really need it and that you can't save yourself. If the Bible says, if you would come, come now while the Spirit speaks, while the Word is being preached, while many, even this morning, have prayed over the service and prayed over this time together that, that you, and through all the hardness and, and through all the stubbornness in your own life, would lay those things down and come to Christ and be saved today. Even at this moment, crying unto Him. I love Romans chapter number 10 where he says, They that call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? saved and you don't have to come up here and you don't have to say a certain prayer but you do got to call on him you've got to come to him and that calling and coming you should do it now when the spirit speaks today we deal with unbelief today the second word i want us to consider this morning is together together notice with me verse number 13 but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hear this instruction for us. Not only do we battle unbelief of the reality of today, but we do it together. We do it together. Exhort one another. Encourage one another. Preach to one another. Share with one another. Pray with one another. It brings us back to the significance of gathering together. And that should be on the very tips of our minds when we read passages like this, when we've gone through nationally, globally, what we've gone through and being forbidden to gather together during part of this time. He's saying there's something essential, something needful, something necessary going on as we, as we gather together as a body of Christ. It is, it is imperative, it is important that you, you come together to exhort one another in the day, in the moment, in the time so that we may fight unbelief together. We may fight unbelief together. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Can I say this? That sin is deceptive. And the first person that deceives is you. That's why it's so easy for you to condone things you'd condemn in other people's life. Is that true or what? I mean, you, you would be easier to pass things off and, 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 and justify things in your own life that if it was somebody else and you were standing looking at them, you'd condemn. 
because sin is deceptive in the first person it deceives us. We need other people walking alongside of us, encouraging us to, to exhort to us. And the word there just simply means to come alongside of. It, it, it's similar to the word paraclete of, of a comforter. So that's what we're doing. We're coming alongside of to, to comfort, to exhort one another, to, to point one another to Christ and the cross and, and to be reminded that we're not on this journey by ourselves, but we're going through this thing with, a, with, the, with the body together, together. And isn't it also true that the greatest temptation in our life when we are in the midst of sin or when we're discouraged to withdraw from some of the means of grace and some of the company that we need so desperately in our life? To isolate ourselves and to pull away from the body of Christ, to, to kind of hide ourselves because we, we have our thing, right? We got our thing. We do our thing. And yet we desperately need the care and love, compassion, the company of others to come alongside of us to encourage us. This happens in two ways, doesn't it? One, in a corporate worship this morning as we sing together and the person beside you is singing out of note and tune or maybe that's you and the other person's praying for you, whatever it is. It happens as we come together hearing the word of God being preached to us. But it isn't just coming together on Sunday morning, is it? It is that interaction week in and week out with one another, sharing life just on some level which exposes us and edifies us. It's that you asking your neighbor or someone near you, someone in the body of Christ you may have not seen in a week or two, how are you doing? How are you dealing with this? As you know, the birds that go through. A part of this is to, to continue to stir up our faith. We need the body of Christ in that continual stirring up. And can I say this? It is a reckless and foolish thing to live the Christian life solo. You need the encouragement of others. You have to receive it. And you have to encourage others also. I want to ask you, who, are you, who, who have you encouraged this past week? Lift it up in prayer and maybe even reach down to. We deal with this not only in the reality of today, we do it together. Thirdly, I want to just say this. We do it as we consider tightly. I know that's an odd word, but I needed a T. And that's basically what he says here. Verse number 14, okay? We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, we look at how he speaks about what has been done of us, sharing in Christ. That means the sharing. And, and people kind of wonder what this means or, or argue about what this means. Some suggest it is a sharing in his glory and kingdom. He's speaking about rest. That, that is a promise given to us. John Gill understands this as being in Christ or sharing of Christ. And he defines it this way. The phrase is expressive of union to Christ, which... Not by faith on man's part, but by the Spirit of Christ's part. By his everlasting love, taking his people into oneness with himself, thereby becoming their head, surety and representative, which is the ground and foundation of all the blessings of grace imparted to them. He's saying that all the blessings and, and joy that comes of sharing in him. He has made Christ all things to us. And he's saying that we've come to share in Christ... Verse number 14, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Well, have you grown in your conviction of the gospel? Now we say and easily quote Romans 1, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? Power of God unto salvation. Have you grown in your confidence of that? As the years and the weather and the and the, the weather, yeah, that's one thing, right? And the miles on your life and the burdens you carry has have you have you has that solidified in your heart? Has that been something you're more sure of, more confident in? As Christ still is satisfying and 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 more so than the moment when you first believed. We grow in that grace and that understanding of who he is. 
Not that you're perfect. But he's saying that keep on believing. Just as you first received Christ, keep on believing. Hold on to the promises of God. Now, you and I know there's no need to explain it, that the world is shaking all around us, but there are some things in this life that are sure, steadfast, unmovable. There's some things that, that, that hold us up and carry us. And that is the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And he's saying, hold fast to that. Not only do we battle unbelief in our life by, uh, by, real, uh, by the reality of today and together, but we do so by pointing ourselves and pointing one another to the firm foundation of the gospel. As Milton Vincent would say, preach the gospel to yourself and many of the other pastors. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us this morning. Thank you that we have a firm foundation, unshaken. I believe the Hebrew writer even refers to that, Mount Zion. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to settle that in our own hearts, to grow deep in that conviction. I think of the uh, Paul writing to the Ephesians and pray that for each of us this morning, that you would give us the spirit of illumination, understanding that we may know the breadth, the width, the depth, the height of the love of Christ, which surpasses understanding. Lord, make that so with all of us. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that may not even know you, standing on the edge, holding you at a distance, Lord, that you would, even at this moment, even today, that they would, that they would put their faith and trust in Christ. They would follow through with faith, belief, trust him. Lord, help each of us as we, we commit ourselves again over and over, reminding of the need to encourage one another, edify, come alongside of one another. And thank you as we have seen that played out over and over, week after week, out of this body of Christ. Help us to continue to be faithful in that. Lord, we'll give you the glory for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.